0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title
1: of the book, The Ensign Locker, and the author is J.J. Zare, and Jack joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jack. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Uh, We're going to talk about this well, it's uh, a bit of uh, controversy over the Vietnam War at the same time. It deals with uh, your strong feelings about what
2: you can do for your country, right? Uh, yes, that I think wrapped up in the book.
1: Well, let me read a couple of things you've written. You say this, following Desert Storm, I saw the Welcome Home the Troops received from that war. This was in stark contrast to how servicemen and women were treated in the late 60s and early 70s. The Ensign Locker tells the story of a young man who comes to believe it is more important to battle the strident anti-establishment voices across the country than it is to battle the North Vietnamese. To battle those voices, he chooses to stay in the military and serve in the unpopular war. Well, we all remember the sad part of history of how we treated our soldiers come, coming home from Vietnam, and um, I'm really sorry uh, that that all happened. I guess you felt that, didn't you?
2: I did. Um, I, I guess I would say at the same time, though, um, you know, one of the things this country stands for, and, I mean, it's supposed to be government... Of the people and the people have to be able to voice how they're thinking and feeling about things. The unfortunate part about the way a number of young people were feeling in those days is they chose to take out some of their frustrations about the way things were going on the military um, and in most cases at least in my mind the military were there um, trying to provide a service to the country um, and um, it, it just was a traumatic thing to feel like you were providing a service and then come home and, and quite frankly, the people you were trying to serve pretty much threw it back in your face. Um, so it was it was a traumatic time um, in the country. I mean, for me individually, but I think for the country as well.
1: For everyone's information, Jack served 36 years in the Navy and between 1966 and 72, he completed three deployments to Vietnam and he was on a destroyer and he had uh, two deployments on an aircraft carrier from which he flew 330 combat missions. And my goodness, we—it's uh, most of us are overwhelmed by that kind of service, Jack. Thank you so much for the, your devotion to this country.
2: Well, <laughs> hearing you say that, um, you know, it, it means a lot. Thank you.
1: Now, you heard JFK say, ask what you can do for your country. Not what your country can do for you, but... Ask what you can do for your country. Tell us uh, how you felt when you first heard that.
2: Well, quite frankly, it sounded to me sort of like something coming from a communist nation. You know, put the state first. Um, That's really what I thought originally. Um, And when I was a young man, I grew up in a small town in Missouri, my ambition was to get out of my small town, um, uh, get to college, get a good job, have a family. That was my ambition. I I was looking for the country to provide me the wherewithal to to realize my ambition, to pursue my happiness, if you will. Um, And it took... um, the Vietnam experience and coming home from my first deployment to Vietnam for that JFK message to really kind of strike home that um, the the wherewithal to to um, pursue happiness isn't just kind of laying out there waiting for for everyone to go and get it some people have to make sacrifices to make sure that that continues um, to be available for future generations I guess um, it, and it didn't it didn't occur to me it didn't um, JFK's message didn't resonate with me until I really saw not necessarily the combat experiences but the, the protest, and a lot of the protests really seemed to be anti-establishment more than anti-war, and, and I took that to be pretty much a threat to the kind of life I was looking for for myself and, and hopefully my family.
1: The main character, John Zachary, is uh, based on uh, a lot of your thinking.
2: Well... Uh, quite frankly, I, I think most writers would say that every character in the book has some kind of a piece of the author in them. But yes, I would say John Zachary has um, has a fair amount of um, Jack Zare in him. Um, the um, and 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 I would say more than that, though. It, it's it, it's maybe what Jack Zare would like to be in some cases, and um, there are also cases where um, um, there are things that Jack Zair did and some of the things John Zachary did that, you know, if he had a life to live over again, he'd probably do them a little differently. So all of that is in there.
1: Now, Zachary, you say, learns about courage from one of his roommates in the uh, ensign locker before the ship enters the combat zone. What happened there?
2: Um, So the ensign locker is the place on the ship where the five junior officers live. And the senior man in the ensign locker is the officer responsible for some radio-controlled drone helicopters the ship had aboard, and the helicopters were designed to be um, uh, driven off the side of the ship uh, out to, say, five or ten miles, where uh, you had located an enemy submarine, and the helicopters could drop a, a torpedo on the enemy submarine. Well, these helicopters, being radio-controlled drones, back in those days, the technology was um, not quite as mature as it should have been. There were significant reliabilities with those helicopters. And every once in a while, one would go a little berserk. And in the incident in the book, this radio-controlled helicopter... um, does go berserk when John Zachary and his one of one of his roommates from the Ensign Locker are trying to do a maintenance ground turn on this helicopter on the helicopter deck on the back end of the ship, and um, <clears throat> John Zachary sees this helicopter that it has um, counter rotating blades and a main rotor blade, so it didn't need a tail rotor. And when those blades start flopping around, they can bash together. And it flings, uh, when that happens, it'll fling um, blade shrapnel over a long, long distance. Well, Zachary and his roommate are standing maybe 15 feet from the helicopter, so they would have been almost certainly uh, killed if that thing had um, continued to go berserk and, and the blades had come together. Well, Zachary feels like he ought to just get as low onto the deck as he can squeeze himself. But his roommate stands at the control console and continues to try and get the thing under control. And since the roommate didn't get down on the deck, Zachary stays with him, and um, between the two of them, they eventually figure out how to get that thing under control. So Zachary... Um, And in the story, Zachary really learns a a lesson about um, courage from witnessing his roommate manage this um, uh, helicopter that's gone berserk.
1: Now, you call one of Zachary's uh, Ensign Locker roommates a rabid anti-war individual. Does Zachary really uh, have confrontations with him?
2: Yes, there are a couple of places where um, confrontations with this anti-war oriented individual occur um, uh, in the story.
1: Well, it doesn't seem possible that someone like that would uh, last too long in the Navy.
2: Um, in the, uh, that particular point in time, um, especially in, in the active duty ranks, um you really didn't see that much in terms of anti-war-oriented people. And the ones who were there were pretty quiet about it. And quite frankly, that's the way this anti-war-oriented individual in the story begins. Um, He is quiet about his feelings. And his nickname is Dormant, for another reason, but... Uh, he spends a lot of time in bed. He's really not a career, more motivated individual, but dormant also implies the way he um, uh, contains his anti-war oriented feelings um, until certain things happen in the book, and um, and and his true feelings uh, become apparent.
1: Now, Zachary also, uh, when he, I guess, uh, during a visit, when the ship returns to San Diego, he gets into quite a conflict with uh, some college students who are opposed to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam.
2: Right. And quite frankly, this is is really um, a, a dramatic incident in Zachary's life. He has had no ambitions to make the Navy um, a career. He intends to spend, he he has gotten an education from the Navy and he owes the Navy service. But as soon as he pays back the service he owes them for the education, Zachary's intention was to get out and become a normal person. But his encounter with these anti-war oriented college kids makes him really pay attention to the stories that appear on TV, to the stories that appear in the paper about all the protest, And that's when Zachary uh, comes to the conclusion that a lot of the protest is really anti-establishment as much or more. Than it is anti-war, and Zachary then decides he needs to do something um, to counter the anti-establishment protest, and what he decides to do is to stay in the service himself and to volunteer for service wherever the government needs him most.
1: We have time for uh, one more comment from you. I find it interesting in uh, some things you've written that you say Vietnam was not an unusually immoral, messy, or wrong war. All our wars have been messy, filled with blunders that caused needless casualties and also atrocities that make you ashamed uh, sometimes we just th- kind of think of the, the general uh view of things you know just vietnam was bad that was bad and like all other wars are okay and nothing bad happens
2: um i do believe that um it's good that we don't get that much experience you know fighting wars um And every time we get into a war, the people who have to fight it um, have many, many fundamental lessons to learn all over again. And mistakes are made. And people who manage to move up in ranks in a peacetime military service are not necessarily going to be able to function well in a combat setting. Um, some people are cut out for that business, some people are able to develop the talents and outlooks on life you need to manage troops in combat, and some people will just never get it. Um, And unfortunately, you only find that out, you know, through um, some mistakes. And, And when these mistakes become intolerable, well then those people are moved aside and and a new person is tried in the role of leader. Um, so, I mean, if you read, I mean, the history of the um, Revolutionary War, I mean, how we won the thing is incredible um, with with the mistakes that were made and, and the professionalism of the British troops compared to the colonial militias. Um, at any rate, wars are just, they, no war is, is clean and, and um, so clean-cut that, that, um, that um, you, you don't have these, you know, blue-on-blue blue or atrocities. People, um, you know, we're taught to love one another and, and to respect each other and, in our churches and schools. And, um, and then you get thrown into war. And the fact that you have a lie incident every once in a while, I mean, uh, people just don't know how to handle all the power that's packed into an automatic um, M-16 um, with hand grenades and grenade launchers. You got all this power. And on a battlefield, um, the only morality out there is the stuff that resides in the heads of each individual. And when you're fighting for your life and scared as all get-out, um, sometimes morality um, kind of takes a second second place to um, a whole bunch of other considerations.
1: The title of the book, The Ensign Locker, and the author is J.J. Zare. Jack, tell us how to get your book.
2: Okay, well, um, it is published by iUniverse, and uh, you can go to iUniverse.com and uh, find the book there. Uh, it is also available through Barnes and Noble and Amazon and <clears throat> it is available in a hardcover, soft and an ebook format.
1: Thanks Jack for being on iUniverse
2: Radio. Thanks very much, Steve. I appreciate uh, the time.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these
3: messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com.
2: you simply-
3: Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio, plus your chance to win great prizes all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for.
0: To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book,
1: Joseph Franz, a Renaissance Man in the 20th Century. And the author is Joanna Humphrey. And Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. Hello, how are you? Your father, Joseph Franz, a remarkable man, coming to the U.S. uh, in 1897. Where was he born?
4: He was actually born in Germany, but his family moved to Austria. His mother was Austrian, and so he moved there when he was four, and uh, that's where he got his basic education was in Austria, and that's from whence he immigrated.
1: So we think about America in 1897. He arrives, my goodness, what a different America than we know.
4: Yes, indeed it
1: was. It really was the land of opportunity back then. Yes. Tell us a little about about him. How did he get started in America?
4: Well, he was 15 when he came here all by himself, although he did have uh, cousins and an uncle that was here before him. But uh, he started um, actually learning English and polishing apartment house uh, uh, brass doorknobs and... uh, things of that sort, and gradually he worked his way into uh, a tool-and-dye company where he learned some general um, practical use of the information that he had studied in uh, Europe, and uh, he got his first job in electricity when he answered an ad in the paper uh, asking if uh, somebody could uh, wipe joints. Uh, in, uh, that meant joining cables together with uh, wipe it, uh, pouring lead over the connection and uh, making a, a smooth joint. And that was his first uh, uh, real job, and he had not done that. He knew what it was. He'd studied it in Europe, but um, he came home after the interview and uh, spent the night in the basement of uh, the place where he was staying, and uh, practiced and practiced and practiced until he was perfect at it, so that when he showed up the next morning, he was an expert.
1: Well, that all by itself, that just that short story says volumes about your father.
4: <laughs> he was quite a man.
1: You know, I mean, to have that kind of Uh, understanding of what he had to do Uh, here was an opportunity and he had to as they say seize the moment
4: exactly
1: so that's how we got started in electricity and and, uh, how did he did he become an electrical engineer
4: yes he did he became an electrical engineer Uh, his uh, first work was here in New York City helping to uh, lay the underground cables in uh, Manhattan and uh, eventually he uh, was promoted And uh, along the way because he was as efficient as he was, and he was a good teacher and taught others how to do the same kinds of work. And um, it, so by the time he was 19, he was working in, Bo- uh, in Boston as the uh, boss, the chief of uh, a crew that was wiring the Boston T-System.
1: Well, someone said, if you really want to learn something, uh, teach it.
4: Mm Mm-hmm, exactly.
1: Because you really got to understand it if you're going to teach it. Right. And it sounds like that's the kind of man he was.
4: Yes, he certainly was. He was a very good teacher, as a matter of fact. And many of the uh, men that worked under him had written very wonderful letters uh, after he died saying how much they'd learned from him.
1: Now, you write that he, and you put it this way, defied the most respected electrical names of the time, such as George Westinghouse, to experiment with untested methods of producing and providing electricity.
4: Yes, that is true. Um, When he was working in the Berkshires, he uh, was hired by the fledgling Stockbridge Electrical Company, to uh, wire the town of Stockbridge uh, for electric uh, power and light, and uh, George Westinghouse had uh, tried to combine overhead with underground wiring, and it had failed. And my father said, well, he thought he could make it work, and uh, so he did, and uh, the same system is still in uh, operation today, and uh, it's still working.
1: Not only was he an electrical engineer, but he was an architect.
4: Yes, that happened uh, along the way also. Primarily, uh, he started his architectural uh, business while he was still working as an electrical engineer. He designed and built uh, three buildings in Stockbridge, two commercial buildings and his own house. And after he retired, uh, he uh, designed and built the shed at Tanglewood for the Boston Symphony Summer Festival and uh, eventually uh several years later designed and built the first theater uh, exclusively for the dance for Jacob's Pillow.
1: Now he comments that because of his European education it wasn't the thing to do to brag about yourself. That's so, cor-
4: That's correct. I mean yes. they even
1: called it he even called it unethical.
4: Yes. Yes, that's the way he was uh, brought up, and that's the way his teachers taught him. They said that the work should speak for itself.
1: So stay modest.
4: Exactly.
1: Don't get caught up in all your pride. Yes. So there are very few who are aware of his contributions and his service to many areas.
4: That's correct, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to honor him, and he really was a representative of many unsung heroes who had uh, built this country in the early uh, 20th century to make it the great nation it became.
1: Now, he also, uh, in just some of his writings, uh, you point out that he talked about how much he had taken his youth for granted.
4: Well... Yeah, I don't know whether he really took it for granted or simply d- just didn't talk about it. Didn't uh,
1: appreciate it, it enough, huh?
4: Well, I don't know whether he didn't appreciate it or whether it was simply the Europeanism in him that didn't... He never really talked much about himself or the way he felt about things. Or, I mean, he talked about his family in the uh, factual way of who was whom and, and so forth, but... He never really told us how life was for him. And so it was rather difficult to uh, paint a picture of his youth and his early days except from the the, the facts that I had and knowing my father uh, and trying to figure out how he might have felt about those facts.
1: Now, this book is also about well, it includes your birth and your early years as well.
4: Yes, it does.
1: And you have brothers and sisters?
4: Yes, I have uh, um, two half uh, siblings The my uh, older brother and sister, who are both deceased at this point, and then uh, the uh, three younger uh, groups of us that I was the oldest, then my sister, and uh, another brother.
1: Talk about his. What you say, uh, quote, his daring innovations made the newly invented electric, electric street railways safer. What did he do?
4: Well, one of the problems with the early electrical uh, wiring was the fact that they would string two wires very close to each other uh, for the uh, power for the street wa- railway. And in a storm with wind blowing, the two wires would very often uh, connect and cause a short circuit. And my father invented a device that would keep the wires separate and keep them from turning onto each other and therefore prevent the short-circuiting.
1: Well, we, uh, you know, again, in the early days of this century, uh, a, a lot of things were so... Elementary compared to today. Well, yeah. that's
4: right. That's right. I mean, one of his biggest inventions was the uh, first outdoor generator.
5: Hmm. Uh,
4: and that uh, that machine has been put back into working order just recently <laughs> by somebody else in uh, Massachusetts. It has, it's not in its original uh, uh, situation now, but it's working again.
1: One of the themes of your book, you say, is unionization. Now, what part did he play in unionization?
4: Well, he himself became a union member when he was working here in New York uh, for the electrical company um, and uh, remained a union member until he became a, 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 a boss or a, you know, a. a, a an engineer above the grade of uh, unionization.
1: What else would you like to share with us, Joe?
4: Well, I think that he was not only um, a hard-working man, but he was also an excellent uh, father and uh, concerned citizen. He was very interested in preservation, and uh, very early when he moved to Stockbridge, became involved with several groups that were preserving the um, uh, landscape around, in and around Stockbridge. He also uh, taught in schools, volunteered his time to go into schools and teach uh, elementary electricity, if you will, um, and uh, lectured, well, he lectured for um, other, you know, adult groups as well as children, and he was very good at that. And he also um enjoyed sports he was a um lifelong ice skater and uh skier uh, up until his later years and uh built a skating rink in Stockbridge for the uh, town uh, enjoyment um he uh started the Stockbridge Ski Club <laughs> and um uh he was also instrumental in uh uh politics uh, in uh, the 1930s. He became a selectman and um, served uh, uh, two terms for uh, uh, the town of Stockbridge. So he was, you know, involved in many, many uh, aspects of life.
1: He sounds like a man who was not afraid to try anything.
4: That's exactly the, that would describe him exactly.
1: Well, Joe, uh, let's see... Joseph Franz is the title of the book. Joseph Franz, A Renaissance Man in the 20th Century. And you are Joanna Humphrey. Yes, I
4: go by Joe Humphrey.
1: Joe, tell us how to get your book.
4: Well, you can buy it uh, through iUniverse or uh, from Amazon or um, uh, Barnes & Noble.
1: Well, thank you so much, Joe, for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
6: How to invest. Where to invest. Where to save. Where to get the right insurance? What to do about taxes? Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go to My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to My Radio Show is unbiased, and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to My Radio Show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to My Radio Show with Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey, moms! Juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazillo.
3: Friday afternoons at five Eastern, four Central, on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. Show and Angie, check out her website azmamaminihats She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful, and she is valuable. Mom of many hats with Angie Mazillo, Friday afternoons at five Eastern, four Central, on the Mom to Mom Network.
0: Welcome back to i Universe Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book: The
1: Lost Queen of England. And the author is H. Elizabeth Owen. And Elizabeth joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Elizabeth.
5: Hello, Steve.
1: This is a fascinating twist on today, the news of today, not that long ago, and, of course, the tragic death of Princess Diana. Uh, in fact, Princess Diana, she seems to make uh, still make the covers of the tabloids. Uh, oh, yeah. And of course, a queen from the ancient Egyptian uh, mystery, the mystic Egypt. You know, I mean, we all wonder about Egypt, don't we? Yes, it's
5: it's in our souls, I think. Yeah. So,
1: so you say <laughs> <least> this? <laughs> you say this? Thousands of years apart in time, two lost queens made the same decision to disappear from their lives forever. Now, in an astonishing twist of fate, their two lives come together and become irrevocably entwined. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And, of course, the what if. What if Princess Diana didn't really die in the car that night in Paris? So this has a a really great intrigue, and that what if factor is always a great factor. So where would you come up with this idea, Elizabeth?
5: Well, when I was 11, I read a book about um, the life and times of Pharaoh Tut- Tutankhamun and his queen, little Moon. And in that book, after Tut died at 18 years old, his queen decided to flee the dangerous court of Thebes, disguised as a common boatman's wife. And I was so mesmerized by that story that I I. For the first time, I was pulled in, sort of, and felt like I was actually there, living it, walking in the halls of the palace and sailing on the Nile and in a royal barge, and that's when I fell in love with all things Egyptian. I, uh, I actually went to Egypt on my honeymoon and cruised up the Nile for 10 days, and while I was there, I just couldn't help but wonder what really happened to Tut's little queen, because no one knows. No trace of her has ever mm. been found. She disappeared from history immediately after his death. So while I was there and for years afterwards, ideas kept kind of coming to my mind about how, how did her story end? What really happened to her? So when Princess Diana's car crashed in the tunnel in Paris, I thought it was really strange that it took almost two and a half hours to get her to the hospital. So I wondered if something else was and going her,
1: on. And her, her friend lover was Egyptian.
5: Yes, he was Egyptian. Well, I wondered what was going on behind the scenes, and I thought maybe it was she was planning how to leave her life, you know, kind of like the queen. And so it just sort of evolved from there. She, you know, Dodie did want to take her to Egypt in the story, and so she chooses Egypt um, as a refuge, and she goes there in disguise, you know, black hair, darkly lined eyes, Um and so the next step was obvious to me. She stays, she learns Arabic, studies archaeology, and um tries to find out what happened to Ankisana Moon because, of course, in the story, she, like me, read the same book as a child and always wondered what had happened to her and now it comes back to her that it was kind of it's kinda of coincidental that two lost queens in history, her, the lost queen of England, and this little lost queen of Egypt, made the same decision thirty three centuries apart. To be, you know, to disappear. So um, it becomes her obsession to find out what happened to Tut's lost queen. And that's, that was the whole motivation.
1: And the book starts out with her about to see if there really is something behind this sealed
3: wall.
5: Yes. Yes. She, um, um, in the year 2000, and this is true, um, two anomalies were discovered by radar scans Right under the tourist walkway, in front of Tut's tomb, and it just happened to play right into my book. Um, that one has been uh, uncovered, and it was a funerary prep room. You know, they found um, the wrappings and the natron, which they use in mummification. So they think the other anomaly or or a void is an actual burial, and since it's so close to Tut's tomb. Um, in my book, of course, it is the final resting place of his wife, Onk Moon, and others that are very interesting.
1: Well, give us some of the other characters that play a very important role with Diana.
5: Well, um, I think it's kind of interesting that when Diana finds herself in Doty's apartment, listening to the sirens and finding out what has happened, that the person that she calls is Charles. And um, you'll see how the royal family and Charles kind of help her take these next steps into living a life, an anonymous life, um, of course she has to be able to see her boys and it's an you know it's a sort, of, sort of an undercover thing and the royal family is involved i tried to i was a little nervous about doing that but i i figured that there was no way that she could just i couldn't just throw her in the middle of cairo and have her survive by her wits you know alone mm-hmm. so um sure they that would make do sense help her. yeah and um then um the director secretary general of the um department of antiquities in Egypt is in there anonymously of course he um i, I didn't have permission to use his name so i describe him dr Zawi hawass is actually who the the partner the uh, character is based on but he is the one and actually feels diana's um uh, he feels it's fate that this person known as, not Diana, of course, uh, her name is Luna in the book, he feels something for her and feels that she is tied somehow to this ancient family and gives her the chance, even though she's a newly minted archaeologist, to dig at this uh, anomaly. Um, And it turns out to be the one.
1: But she has natural intuition.
5: Yes she a few things have given her the sign you know she she lost everything but her life and she chose to treat that as a huge gift and and the help with the help of the royal family got to start over again and sort of what would you do with your life if you were given a second chance to just start new you know so she does she doesn't think of herself she's always thought of herself actually as Sort of thick as a plank, I think, was the um, the verbiage or the description. But she's not, she finds out. She learns Arabic. She she you know, starts just slowly taking archaeological classes and finds that she has a talent and a knack. But little things happen, like swirls of dust. Um, and she hears whispers in the Cairo Museum. and You know, little things like that that are sort of odd, little incidences that are, sort of help her along this path to to the end.
1: Of course, the story jumps from the present age, back 33 centuries, uh, back to ancient Egypt.
5: Yes, my favorite part of the story.
1: <laughs> Diana
5: was just the the catalyst that I needed to finish that story that I'd been thinking about all my life, you know. So we do jump back to ancient Egypt to the time when um pharaoh akhenaten the iconoclastic pharaoh started a new city um halfway between memphis and thebes and uh, for it he built it for his god the aten and uh, as you know tut akhenaten was tut's father so he grew up there and we kind of grow up with tut and lots of interesting th- things happened to the royal children there five Six daughters, actually, uh, one of whom he marries, Ankasana Moon. And we just kind of follow what happens all the way to his death and then um, Ankasana Moon's escape. That's my favorite part.
1: So, his half sister, she plays an important part in this tale with a lot of twists and turns.
5: Yes, yes. She has always been the most interesting to me because she had to figure out, of course, here her husband, we think, was murdered. Um I, I didn't specifically point a finger to the evil um uh, Grand Vizier eye as everyone has tried to do for years, but he definitely had a part in the death. Um the circumstances surrounding the death contributed to, you know, his ability to just kind of do away with this little eighteen year old Pharaoh who was so popular and become the next king. We think that evil eye, uh Married Ankhusana Moon because they did find a gold blue glass uh, marriage ring with his cartouche on it and Ankhusana Moon's cartouche on it, but that was the last we hear of her. So she, in this original book that I read as a child, escaped with help. And so I sort of, you know, developed that whole story
1: and so carry on. So it seems destiny that uh, one lost queen would find the other.
5: Yes, that, that I just thought was so interesting. Here we lost Diana. She was supposed to have been the Queen of England, uh, would have been the next one, I'm sure. Um, and And then we go back in time, and she finds another queen that had to disappear, that left her life because it was just too much, you know, too overwhelming, too dangerous.
1: Now, is there some kind of connection that, uh, is it Luna?
5: Luna, yeah. Luna
1: yes. feels uh, from this, you know, lost queen uh, from Egypt, or is there something that the the uh, queen of Egypt is feeling?
5: Um, well, there is a scene where Diana is standing um, before Tut's tomb, you know, in in uh, the Valley of the Kings, and. You, uh, she suddenly smells this p- overwhelming perfume, and um, it's almost as if she feels that Anksana Moon is telling her. N- Tell Tut what happened to me, you know, tell him, tell him that you're going to find me, tell him, you know, so she, she hears, she hears that she feels Tut's presence sort of listening to the story. When she's in Amarna, which is the uh, modern name for the city that Akhenaten built in the desert of course as an archaeological student archaeology student, Egyptologist, she goes to Amarna a lot to do digs and stuff. She feels the whispers. She hears whispers in the air. She feels that she's been brought there to help tell the end of the story. So yes, it's all very you know, when she's in the Cairo Museum and she's standing before the huge bust of Akhenaten again she she sort of disappears into a a state where she hears just ancient whisperings, you know sort of ancient that ancient Egyptian that we don't know what it sounds like, but you know i i I can hear it in my in my mind, so that's what she hears
1: well, Egypt certainly has been in the news uh, of yes. late and uh, you know the overthrow overthrow of the government and the the ransacking of the cairo museum
5: yes, oh my gosh. <laughs> It, it It is in uh, such flux right now, and we anyone who's interested in ancient Egypt or the preservation of ancient history has to be afraid that something might happen to all of these incredible um relics that that are there in the cairo museum i mean there they are just rooms and rooms and rooms filled with dusty you know implements and mummies and just this history that we have to protect. I don't. I mean, Dr. Zawi Hawass is now. Um, he has resigned. Who knows if he resigned or was fired or whatever. But hopefully, they know that the world. They that they are the carekeepers of the world for the world. Uh, Egypt has, you know, this incredible um, dry climate that preserves things for thousands of years. And we've just learned so much because of that. And to maybe have looters or, um, you know, destruction in in one form or another, chaos, always, um, those kinds of things always seem to suffer during periods of those periods. So hopefully, things will settle down a little bit. And I can go back and sail up the Nile. um, And everyone else can too. It's, It's, just an incredible place. I I wish them luck. I hope. I I, I do think that they understand freedom and they want to be a democratic society. I don't think that they are. um, I think they'll recognize that they have a real treasure here that they need to protect. So let's keep our fingers crossed.
1: And does Luna, in her quest for treasure, does she face danger?
5: Yes, she faces danger. She faces, you know, self-doubt. It's all about trying to cope, you know, reinvent yourself, change with the times, figure out how to live your life, maybe not as grand or as perfect or as good as it was before, but uh, but still you're living your life and you can make it grand and perfect again if you're willing to change.
1: The title of the book, The Lost Queen of England, and the author is H. Elizabeth Owen. Elizabeth, tell us how to get your book.
5: Well, you can, um, of course, get it through iUniverse. You can order at barnesandnoble.com, borders.com, and you can order through your local bookstore.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks for being with us on
5: iUniverse Radio. Thanks, Steve. I hope you read the book